let's turn our attention to God's word, if you would, if you'll stand as you're able. We're going to read Luke chapter 22, verses 24 through 34. This is God's word. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you know me. Conan O'Brien, the comedian and the late night talk show host and also the Harvard graduate, said that One of the benefits of graduating from Harvard is that every time you don't know what to do something, you get to hear someone say, you graduated from Harvard and you don't know how to do that? You know, we're sending one of our own to Harvard to be an RUF intern. That's for a different time. But uh, they asked Harvard graduates what they hope to achieve with their degree recently. Um, And it was a survey Number one answer was wealth. Number one answer was wealth. Number two answer was notoriety. And the number three answer was status. Those are the three things that they hoped, that Harvard graduates hoped to achieve with their degree from Harvard. Uh, in our passage this morning, Jesus is going to talk about greatness, what it means to be great. And he's going to describe what the world considers great. If you look in verse 25, he says, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. If we think about it, what Jesus says, what the Harvard graduates say, lines up, right? What is it that we view as success in this world? Uh, It can be broken down into a couple of categories. One would be wealth. It answers the question this, Can I acquire what I want? That's what wealth is. Can I, can I acquire what I want? The second is notoriety. That answers the question, do people know who I am? It's a, never a good look to be like, do you know who I am, by the way? <laughs> a lot of people have gotten in trouble saying that. Don't say that. We don't know who you are. And uh, uh, the third is influence. Can I get my way? Right? It's one thing to have wealth and to acquire things. It's another thing. For people to know who you are, but then it's the third thing to be able to exercise both of those to get, you know, your way. And then the last thing 
And Jesus mentions this. He says, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. This is the third element, or fourth element, excuse me, is perceived philanthropy. There's wealth, there's notoriety, there's influence, but also do people perceive me as generous? Not am I generous? That's not the question that's being asked. The question is, am I perceived as generous? Am I perceived as someone who, yes, they're wealthy, or yes, they have influence, or yes, they have notoriety, but they're cool about it. They, they give it away, or they seem to give it away. If you answer yes to all those questions, then according to the world, you're great. Congratulations. Uh, you'll see that Jesus has a different version of greatness. Verse 25, we've read, look what he says in 26. Well, he starts out and he says, but not so with you. Not so with you. Why is Jesus telling us this? He's telling us this because his disciples, or why, why is he telling the disciples? Because they're arguing over who is the greatest. They're, they're unsure about what's about to happen. It's a time of great uncertainty. Their leader keeps talking about that he's going to go away, that he's going to die, that he's going to be lifted up. They don't like the sound of that. And naturally, in a time of uncertainty, they begin to position themselves to exercise authority and power. I think that there's something to be said there for us. We're in a time of transition, and we might find ourselves thinking along the world's lines and positioning ourselves for worldly greatness. But the Savior says, not so with you. He says, let the greatest among you He doesn't say the least. He says, let the greatest among you become as the youngest. Become as the youngest. Now, I I, I titled this sermon Forever Young because I always title my sermons or try to title them after songs because I think that's fun. It's not for y'all. That's for me. It's a little bonus for me. Well, I love the song Forever Young because I can say that and it literally, there's literally tons of different songs that you have in your head right now. You might have Bob Dylan in your head because he sang Forever Young, right? A little folksy tune. Or you might have um, Rod Stewart in your head. I don't know if you maybe you have that in your head now. Or maybe you have uh, Alphaville that's made famous in uh, Napoleon Dynamite. Uh, I don't know what you have in your head, but those songs about being forever young, those are not, they don't really capture what Jesus is talking about here, Right? They're talking about youth and forever having the energy and the exuberance that you have when you're, when you're, when you're young and, and the desire to have that forever. I, I don't think they've really thought that through uh, all the way, uh, those philosophers that would want to be young forever. I tell the youth all the time I would never trade places with them. Uh, I contend that the 90s was the best time to be young, but uh, I'm sure you feel the same about your generation. What he says when he says, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, is that Jesus lived in a time in which elders were revered, where children and young people were to serve, to be seen and not heard in some ways. And so uh, so he is telling them that in their culture where the elders are honored, that they should be lowly like the young. Uh, there is a tribe, there are many tribes in Papua New Guinea, which is just north of Australia. Um, and uh, uh, they're 
referred to locally or collectively as the Itamal people, even though that's just one of the many tribes that are there. And when they were trying to translate the Bible into their language, um, uh, they wanted uh, to translate in a way that would uh, make sense culturally. And in their culture, they, they traveled in canoes a lot. And there was a hierarchy about where you sat in the canoe. The most important person in the canoe sat in the middle, right? The second most important person sat at the bow, the front um, of the boat. And then the least important person sat in the stern, and they paddled. And this is how they translated this passage from Jesus uh, into the Atama language. Listen to this. If a person wishes to be a leader, he should not sit in the middle of the canoe. Let him sit at the stern. Let him do everyone's work. Mm. Jesus says that the path to greatness in his kingdom is the path of service. But he really doesn't say that. He's not really saying what I just said is, is, a, is not correct. What he actually says is this. Not that the path to greatness is service. That service itself is greatness. There's a difference, right? We're very familiar with the idea of paying your dues, right? You, you pay your dues. You start at the bottom, right? And you work your way. You start as a teller of the bank and you work your way up to, a, I don't know what's next, a loan officer, some banker in here is going to correct me later and that's fine. Then you become this or become that. And eventually over time, when you pay your dues, you're, you sit as the president of the bank and then you just sit in the chair with your feet up on the desk and just relax um, and don't do anything. Uh, if there's a president of a bank, and I know there are presidents, I know that you, that's not true, but um, that's kind of the idea, right? Is that the younger people, they work hard and then as you pay your dues, you become great and then you kind of like sit back and enjoy the kingdom that you have achieved. That is not what Jesus is saying. That is a very American idea, right? But that's not what Jesus is saying. This is what Leon Moore says. Faithful service isn't the path to true greatness. Faithful service is itself true greatness. That is not how we think. Okay? What Jesus is saying here is quite countercultural. He is not saying that if we pay our dues, then we'll put our feet up. He says, no, when you're paying your dues, that itself is greatness. That service in his kingdom is greatness. And who does he list as an example? Himself. Look in verse 27. He asked a question, a rhetorical question, because the answer is obvious to the disciples. For who is the greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Obviously, the one who reclines is greater. Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Service, the fact that Jesus serves is not what makes him great. That, that's not what he's saying. He is great. And therefore, he serves. Don't get the cart before the horse. There's a little bonus. It's not in your outline, but I thought I'd add in verse 29. He says, 28 and 29, he says, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. So he's recognizing that they've stayed with him in his trials up until now. They will leave him. He says to them from verse 29, I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom. Now, Jesus Christ was assigned a kingdom, but he didn't come just to rule over it. He came to serve. And his disciples are assigned a kingdom. Guess what they are going to be expected to do? To serve. 
So that's the first section of our passage, verses 24 through 30. Jesus talks about greatness, about the world's view of greatness, but also his view of greatness, what he sees as greatness. Then it takes a very personal turn. You know that fear that you have or you had when you were in school where you might get called up? I don't even know if they do this anymore. They probably don't for some reason. But <laughs> um, my one of my biggest fears was to get called up in front of the class to do something that I was not good at, which I didn't excel. <laughs> I was When they call you up and you know what you're doing, it's no big deal. It's like, oh, I'll do this math problem. It's fine. Um, one time <laughs> I got suckered into, start, into doing varsity chorus. And uh, they needed boys. Apparently it didn't matter what tune you sang in. They just needed the bodies um, and tuxedos. But uh, then... And they were like, you'll just sing in this group. You you know, it's no big deal. And then in the middle of the class, she was like, all right, I'm going to call one person from each section to come and sing their part or whatever. And she called me and I literally almost had a heart attack. Right. Um, To get called out like that. Um, It was hilarious. My friends thought it was hilarious. I did not find it as funny. Uh, Right here in the middle of his discourse on greatness. It just turns like that in verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold. Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. So all of a sudden, Jesus is talking to the disciples, and then he just looks at Peter. And he calls him out, and he says something that's very foreboding. But I, I want to point out here that this is he, even though he is addressing Peter, he is actually talking to all the disciples. And the reason we know that is because the you here is plural. When it says, Satan demanded to have you, it's you all. It's y'all. Right. Satan demanded to have you all. Satan is surely after the leaders in any group of Christians. Absolutely. That's true. Uh, But he is after all of them. He is after us, no matter if we are high up on the totem pole or at the very bottom. And Satan has a plan. Jesus tells us that he is going to sift. He wants to sift Peter like wheat. Our enemy's plan has three parts. The first part is he wants to encourage us. And you might not think of Satan as an encourager, but he definitely does want to encourage us and push us in certain directions. Uh, He wants to encourage us to trust ourselves and our strengths. He wants us to exercise ownership over them, to treat our gifts as if they didn't come from God, but that they're ours. That there's something that we earned, and even if we didn't earn it, we honed it, and we feel a little owed because of our magnanimous use of our tremendous gifts. He wants us to encourage that kind of mentality in us. He, He absolutely does. He also wants to discourage us. He wants to discourage us from trusting God's love. He wants to chip away at our assurance of salvation. He wants... To speak into our ear, to whisper into our ear, there is no way. You you can sing all the hymns you want to sing, and you can pray all the prayers you want to pray, but there is no way that God loves you. He knows what you're really like. And he wants to just, he wants to be the, to discourage us in that way, to be that little voice in the back of our mind that tells us, you're not okay. You're a fraud, you're a fake. Uh, I certainly feel that quite frequently. 
Uh, think about that song. I think about that song we sing. Uh, our sins on Sunday night sometimes. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Satan wants us to forget that. He wants us to not believe that. He wants to encourage us and discourage us. And lastly, and most importantly, he wants to consume us. Our enemy wants to consume us. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5, this message got through to Peter. He says, be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. I don't know if you've ever read the screw tape letters. Uh, C.S. Lewis said that's his most popular book because it was the shortest, <laughs> and, uh, which I thought was really funny. Uh, but in that book, it's two demons talking to each other, like a, a tutor demon and a, and a pupil demon or whatever. And toward the end, the pupil demon really messes up. Um, and uh, he tells the, the tutor demon says, uh, bring us back food or be food yourself. And then when he messes up, he says, I think they're going to give you to me now, or at least a part of you. The way that Satan works is dog eat dog. He wants to consume us. I've used this illustration before, but it's a good one, so I'll use it again. Uh, there was a, uh, I went to Mississippi State. They have a veterinarian school. Uh, I don't know if it's good or bad. I assume it's good. They keep, they still have it. And, uh, and, uh, they used to wear t-shirts. I used to love this. They used to wear these t-shirts and it said, uh, Mississippi State School of Veterinary Medicine on the front. On the back in big letters, it said, real doctors treat more than one species. Uh, so just grab one of those maybe if you're a veterinarian in here, uh, really show those other doctors. (laughs) Um, but there's a, a true story about a veterinarian. Uh, he was, uh, he was, uh, a man brought in his pet snake. Um, and already I don't like this man, but, uh, uh, if you have a pet snake, repent and believe and get rid of it. Um, I said that to the youth one time and a girl came up to me and was like, I have a pet snake. And I was like, I'm not sorry. Get rid of it. Like, um, well, this guy was talking to the vet and he said, you know, they say reptiles have like small brains and they can't really love or like be, you know, um, or friendly. But my snake really loves me. My snake really, really loves me. And uh, the vet said, interesting. How do you know? And he goes, well, sometimes at night I'll let my snake out of the cage and um, or out of its. I'm already creeped out by this, but um, let it out of its little container or whatever. And it will come and it will get on the bed beside me and it will stretch out like and snuggle up against me. Like it'll, it'll stretch itself all the way out and snuggle up against me. And, um, and the veterinarian said, uh, I don't know how to tell you this, but that snake is measuring you. <laughs> and when you are shorter than he is, you're not going to wake up. <laughs> now, that's kind of a funny story. It's a true story. It's kind of a funny story. But can I tell you something and, and not be funny for a second? You are being measured. Okay? And don't think for a second that there's going to be some kind of truce. What does Achilles say to Hector? There, is, there are no binding oaths between men and lions. Wolves and lambs can enjoy no meeting of the minds. They are all bent on hating each other to death. 
Your enemy hates you. And if you think that if you mistake that hate for love and comfort and domestication, you're setting yourself up to be consumed. I I can tell you that I feel that. I feel that regularly. I hope you feel it too. Our enemy wants to encourage us to trust ourselves, to discourage us from trusting God and to ultimately consume us. After he says this foreboding thing to Peter, what, what is, how does Jesus follow that up? Look in verse 32. I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Now, how awesome to think that Jesus prays. That, I mean, Peter, his teacher says, I'm praying for you. And we know that if you're in Christ, that he intercedes for you even now. So be encouraged by that. But notice what, notice what Jesus prays. He does not pray what I pray for my children. I, I, I realize this, right? And I think a lot of us, he, he, he doesn't pray, Father, don't let, ever let Peter doubt. Don't let Peter ever sin. Don't, don't let Peter face any hardship whatsoever. He doesn't pray, Lord, give Peter a simple, quiet, successful life with a good family and good friends and a country club membership and a lake house. And Lord, if I'm really just going to be bold, also maybe like a nice car, like not just a middle one, but like a really good one. He doesn't pray any of those things, right? Now, I, I'm not accusing you, okay? This is not an accusation. I'm a parent. But what I just listed out, don't raise your hand, but who in here wouldn't, if I told you that's what is in the future for your kids, who in here wouldn't be like, oh, good. Thank goodness. That is not what Jesus prays for Peter. Instead, he says this, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Not that you won't fail or that your strengths won't fail or that your speaking won't fail or that your, you know, your health won't fail, but that your faith will not fail. In fact, this prayer in a lot of ways is what we would say a mean prayer. Because really what Jesus is praying is that Peter would come to an end of all of his strengths, of all of his abilities. And that the only thing left that he would hold on to is his faith. The faith that God gives him through the Holy Spirit. That Peter would be forced and will be forced to trust Christ and Christ alone. Now that's a prayer that you can pray for your kids, for yourself, for your neighbors, for your co-workers. Not that everything will work out just the way they hoped. Oftentimes that's the very worst thing that can happen to us but that their faith would not fail. But it's not just that Peter's faith would not fail. Continue reading in 32. I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter is not on a hero's journey, a journey of self-actualization, a journey of self-discovery where that you might uh, read in, a, in an epic story. That's, that's not what's happening here. 
Jesus's prayer for Peter is that when he fails and when all he has left is his faith, that that would in turn strengthen his brothers. Now, Trinity, let me talk to you for just a second. I don't know how significant you feel in this body of believers or in Montgomery or wherever. And, and I, you may feel quite insignificant or you maybe you feel very significant. I, I can tell you this, that this time of transition, a lot of people are pitching in and doing extra things to try to help with the life of our church. But... The goal is that no matter who or what our staff looks like years from now, that that would be the status quo. Not some special DEFCON 5 alert button that we hit. And the goal of Jesus Christ giving you a faith that lasts through anything is so that you might help each other. So that you might strengthen each other. We are in this thing together. Right? We didn't choose this group. They don't, there's not some membership you apply for and Michael and I are back there like looking at it like, mm, I don't know about her. She's, you know, that's not what happened in here. All are welcome. And we need you. We need you and your service and your faith. Everybody in here. Jesus says, when you have turned... Strengthen your brothers. Well, Peter responds to that in verse 33. And this is where we're going to try to draw it to a close. 33 and 34. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. I... um. I was out of town last week. I was speaking at a youth conference. Uh, it was a bunch of non-denominational churches, no one from our denomination. And it's kind of a long story about how they got my name. But, uh, but they asked me to come and to teach. And they had a band. It was like 350 youth. And they had a band. The band was really talented, y'all, by the way. I, mean, I think two of the four singers um, had been competitors on The Voice and made it to the point where they like had a coach or whatever. I don't watch The Voice, but something like that happened. Um, and they were doing all this harmony, like nine-part harmony, and it was amazing. And they were rock. Of course, I felt really old, too, because I was like, man, they're playing loud. But uh, um, <laughs> I think that might be a bad sign for me. But uh, they, were, they, they were really talented, and, and, but I'd never heard any of the songs that they were singing. I mean, not a one of them. And they were blown away by that. They were, they were, we're, you know, they, they told me all these things that all these people that they did their songs. And I said, I've never heard of them, never heard of them. And I was like, y'all know like holy, holy, holy or something like that. Um, I was like, you have no idea how weird I am. I wear a robe when I preach. Uh, but I did notice it was good. It's good to step out of our bubble for a second. It really was good for me to step out of our bubble for a second and see things. And there's some things that we could learn from, uh, from events like that, uh, there's some definitely some things that we can take away. We, we don't have uh, a lion's share of, um, of Christianity. Uh, and, uh, but I, I did notice one thing 
that uh, reminded me of how I grew up is that a lot of the songs that they sang sounded like what Peter says here. It was a lot of, I'm going to do this, and I love you so much, Jesus, and you're the best, Jesus, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that. There were a lot of eyes. There were a lot of first-person singular pronouns in there. Um, and I was thinking, I, I had this passage on my mind because I knew I was preaching next week, right? And I, G, Peter says, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And it just sounded, some of the songs, it's not all of them, but some of them just sounded just like that. I don't know about you, but that's not my experience of the Christian faith. My experience of the Christian faith is not, let me tell you what I'm going to do for you, Jesus. It's, will you please remind me what you've done for me? Because I hadn't done very much. Not very much at all. Um, in times like this, there, I've, I've frequently attempted uh, to exercise what I call false bravado which is to, to fake it till you make it, to act like you know what you're talking about when you really have no clue. I was so good at that in high school, by the way. I mean, amazing. I, I was like level 10 at that, um, uh, and, uh, <laughs> which is a bad habit, by the way. I'm not bragging. Um, I was actually playing chess. Uh, the boys in the youth group have like rediscovered chess, a million-year-old game, and, uh, and they're starting to play it. I was actually playing against uh, Andrew Wells, who is – Way better than me at chess, by the way. <laughs> like It's like me versus, I don't know, someone who, I don't, he is way better. Uh, but what I was doing to try to uh, intimidate him is when I would move my pieces, I would put them down really hard. Um, by the way, that did not work. Uh, <laughs> I got absolutely destroyed. He, he, you know, And it wasn't even very hard for him. He, and he even noticed it. He was like, you're putting the pieces down very hard. I said, I know, I'm trying to intimidate you. It's like, it's not working. Um You can cast your false bravado aside here. Can I just tell you that? Peter is full of false bravado. He's got big ideas. In his head, he's got big ideas about what he's going to do for Jesus. Me too. In my mind, I've always got the right thing to say. I've always got the answer. I always know. In my mind, when I play out scenarios in my mind, I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm going to handle that perfectly. I am a coward. None of that ever happens like I, I said. Or how I imagine. None of it. Let me tell you something. That is the story of the gospel. The story of the gospel is not that Jesus takes people who really know what they're doing and just employs them. No. Jesus Christ takes wrecks. And he puts them back together. And even when they try to let go of him, he always holds on to them. Hear me say that. You will let go of him and look for other things. He will still be there holding you. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, Peter was sure that he was ready. And there may be people here this morning who share that false bravado. Lord, break us of it. Lord, take away what we trust in so that all we have to trust in is you. Lord, and when you do that, use us to grow your kingdom, both numerically and spiritually. Lord, it is our sincere prayer that we would have a dramatic effect on Montgomery, Alabama, the United States, the world. Lord, but only you will use us to do that. Only you can do it. So we pray that you would hold us fast. Pray this in Christ's name and for his sake.
Amen.